Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. So glad you joined us today. Today I'm joined by Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. We're going to be talking about the digital physics argument for the existence of God. So Michael, thanks for joining me. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. It's fun. It's always fun to talk with other people from Pennsylvania because, you know, I don't know, special connection, I guess. Um, well, so. I live in Tucson now, so I, I'm from Pennsylvania, but I don't live there. Yeah, I remember talking with you about that last time. I saw in like one of your Facebook posts, you had like a little like Steelers pillow and I was like, Ah, it's amazing. Just the old connection. Um, oh, yeah. So to start off, mm -hmm. um, to start off, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and like what you do? And so yeah, my name is Michael Jones. I run in the Inspiring Philosophy channel on YouTube, and I make a wealth of videos on various topics, uh, arguing for a Christian worldview for theism. Uh, so yeah, that's generally what I do. Uh, make a bunch of animated graphic style videos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great stuff. And one of the, like, the areas we worked on and debated recently is the digital physics argument for the existence of God. Um, so we're going to be talking about today, kind of looking at like the two premises and objections. And then we'll do a little bit of Q&A at the end. Um, if you have questions or super chats, feel free to send those in. Um, but like, what got you interested in like developing this di digital physics argument for God before we get into like what it is? So yeah, I was more of like a, a standard apologist when I first started out. Uh, I would probably have called myself a substance dualist. Not anymore, though. Uh, and then I started ta uh, I started talking with a couple idealists online uh, who were Christians. And then I started talking with Johan and Rotz a little bit about some of the scientific evidence to support it. And so then from there, I sort of built on some of his stuff, formalized an argument, and sort of uh, went from there. But I found a lot of the evidence for idealism pretty convincing, even from basic philosophy. And so I just became a Christian idealist, started calling myself an idealist and starting putting out arguments out there. So I guess it just sort of happened from being, having a presence on YouTube, networking with different people, talking with them and being open to new ideas. Hmm. So like, if you're going to like present the digital physics argument, can you kind of just give like the basic layout of like what it is and how it kind of leads to God? Yeah. So it's a contingency argument. So it's like the Kalam, but it doesn't rely on causality. So it's, it's, it's causal in it, it's independent of any theory you may have with regarding causality. Uh, so it basically is if the universe is emergent, it's emergent from a mind. Premise two, the universe is emergent. Conclusion, therefore, the universe is emergent from a mind. This mind is what we call God. So that's generally how it is. It's a standard contingency argument. It just argues from more of an idealistic perspective and a lot of new data coming out within scientific research. Uh, but, I mean, you can use the argument from just standard uh, you know, classical understandings of um, contingency. So it, it, use, it you could use a lot of the same data that uses, like, for example, the, the Leibnizian cosmological argument uses. Uh, you don't have to use a lot of the data. I do use some of it because I think it helps support the overall conclusion. So does your argument rely on like a PSR at all? Because um, you said like it doesn't rely on causality because like most contingency arguments would rely on like some form of the principle of sufficient reason. So does the digital physics argument not? No, it doesn't necessarily. It doesn't have to rely on the PSR. You can use that kind of style reasoning you'd use from a Leibnizian version, but you don't need to. Uh, so it doesn't rely on a PSR. The PSR is not in any of its premises. Uh, it's basically, again, it's just the universe. If the universe is emergent, it's emergent from a mind. Premise two, the universe is emergent, so it's emergent from a mind. It's pretty simple. It doesn't rely on the PSR. It doesn't rely on any form of causality. Again, you could use that to support it if you want, but it's not necessary. There's there's actually many ways you could argue for it from what I found. So some people have, have said, well, your argument relies on this one interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is false. Mm -hmm. it, it, that's not true at all. I mean, you could use it. You don't even need to use quantum mechanics to argue for it. You could, and if you did, you could use the relational interpretation. You could use the, sta the standard orthodox interpretation, or you could use something like uh, the conceptual interpretation. You don't, need there's many different avenues ways you could argue for it. it's just the general point i'm trying to get at mm, that's super good um so like what's the story in like developing this argument like how many years have you been like working on this and like how have your like how have your views changed as you've developed like the digital physics argument yeah so i think i started in 2013 uh, and that's when i first formalized the version I, I reformulated it since then based on feedback and so yeah again i started talking with johan and rots about some of the data in quantum mechanics uh specifically i would try to understand a lot with regards to quantum mechanics, holographic principle, where the data is sort of pointing. And so from there, I thought, well, I could probably formulate an argument from this. 
And so then it sort of just became my own thing and I started formulating it and working at it. So how I generally started with is that I was very interested in quantum mechanics because it seemed very counterintuitive. Uh, I knew William Lane Craig held to something called the Bohmian, Bohmian mechanics, which is a different interpretation. And I didn't really like that interpretation, but I didn't know a lot about it at the time. Uh, and so I started studying uh, various things in quantum mechanics like Bell's inequality. Then I studied the Leggett inequality I got really interested in things like the coach inspector theorem, Specker theorem. Uh, so when I realized I could make a pretty good argument from quantum mechanics alone, I thought, well, there probably needs to be a little bit more here. So I branched out into cosmology as well, because I'm like, if, if, if the universe really is emergent, it should be, there should be multiple data points pointing towards this. So mm -hmm. I mean, we could talk about all that as well, but there's the, I looked at a little bit into cosmology as well and found some pretty good evidence there, like from things like the holographic principle. Uh, and so, you know, that's generally how it started going. I started, I wanted, I, I started to realize that the universe really does not seem to be fundamental as it is. Like people tend to think of the universe as this big four dimensional block of space time. And if God went away, like let's say God could just stop existing. The universe could still exist because it exists on its own. Well, it's not really what the data in philosophy or in science and the reasoning in philosophy would point to. It seems to be some sort of like emergent construct, something that you'd sort of see analogous to a simulation in a computer. If the computer went away, the simulation would just go away as well. Mm -hmm. So it, it wouldn't just continue to exist by itself. Likewise, our universe seems to be emergent from underlying information processing, uh, I would argue consciousness. And if that went away, so would the universe. So that's generally how I, and I saw a lot of data in science pointing towards that. So I started to develop the argument around that. Mm. So like, would it be fair to say then, like some people maybe like look at your argument and say like, well, Michael's just saying that we're, li we're living in the matrix, so to speak. So like, <laughs> are we living in the matrix? I mean, that's a good analogy. I mean, remember it's an analogy. Analogies don't represent it accurately. So it's not like we're going to wake up and be in like the real physical world one day. We're just running in an actual computer simulation. I don't think we live in an actual computer simulation. When I say simulation, I mean it very generally. I would say you could say a dream is a simulation is how I define it. It's just a very general term that means like an emergent construct from underlying information. So in that sort of sense, uh, kind of, but it's also, it's a little bit more complex. Generally, my worldview is we exist in, in, consciousness. So sort of in God's mind, I would say we're emergent from God's mind. So God created a simulation or a dreamlike reality <coughs> that we inhabit. And that would be, <coughs> excuse me, and that would be the physical universe. So as an idealist, I don't say that like a William Lane Craig would say that God created matter as like a separate substance. Matter is information that emerges uh, from God's mind. Bernardo Castrip, uh, he uses a talks of it sort of like this. So it's sort of, these are like excitations of patterns within consciousness. So there's a general conscious mind, on my view, uh, that creates excitations of patterns, these various patterns that we can call information. And this is what builds the physical reality that we inhabit. So again, and the best way to explain it is with analogies. It's like a simulation in a computer, or it's like a dream. It, that's the best way I can sort of explain it because analogies resonate better with people. So, like, when we're looking at, like, like we have, like, models of God and such, would this, like, fit with more, like, um, like a panentheistic, like, view of the world where, like, you know, like, the world is kind of within God? Or is it more, like, do you still think you could have, like, kind of, like, like a classical theist or a neoclassical theist interpretation? Or is it just kind of, like, you just don't really have a set position on that? Well, I mean, the Greek Orthodox Church is panentheist. Uh, I liked in the debate review that they did right, recently that they thought I always said pantheism. And I'm not a pantheist. <laughs> I'm a panentheist, which means all in God. The Greek Orthodox Church's basic view is that they are trying to reconcile God's imminence with his transcendence. So they develop something called the energy essence distinction. God is transcendent in his essence and he's imminent in his energies. So the Greek Orthodox position is the universe or the world emerges from God's energies. So we're not part of God's essence. Like We're not what makes God him. He could live just without us. A uh, way you could think of it is like uh, the, all the characters in Lord of the Rings are dependent on J.R. Tolkien, but they're not part of J.R. They're not 
part of what makes Gerald Token him per se. So Sauron could be evil, but Jer that doesn't make Gerald Tolkien evil. He's just a character that is emergent from Gerald Tolkien. So it's like a, it's like a fantasy world that sort of emerges from the mind of Gerald Tolkien. Likewise, you could say our world emerges from the mind of God in a much more complicated way. Obviously, it's just an analogy, but mm -hmm. that's generally how you get get to it. We don't say that we're somehow part of God's soul or his nature or his essence. We are emergent from God's energies. So I think we get to get into some of the premises of the argument now. Um, it's a very simple argument, at least the way you formulate it now. And the first idea is like the universe being emergent. Um, so like, what are some of the reasons you look at to say, like to suggest that the universe is emergent? So yeah, there's actually a video of coming out in a week that uh, I sent you recently, uh, just to review. But the title of the video is Mind or Matter, which is fundamental. And so what I'm going to basically point out in the beginning of that video is that when you start to study the nature of matter, it really gets more abstract the further you go down. So people used to think everything was built by particles. Well, particles turned out to be excitations of quantum fields. So people said, well, everything's quantum fields. Well, quantum fields don't appear to be a material substance or objects. They, again, they, they, then they, seem, they seem to be mathematical representations. So what, what is our material reality is if we keep going down further and further, everything just gets down to just mathematical information or abstractions or representations. Well, that is what the idealist has been saying, or what various idealists have been saying for centuries, is that all of what we experience in the material reality, it's not like a substance, it's information, it's excitations of patterns and consciousness, it's properties, various ways that people have tried to name these things, but it's generally, it just reduces to information. That's what mm -hmm. the, modern person is best going to understand it as because we are living in a computer age we understand what that means it's information so for example um if i could give you a quote about what i mean uh minor coolman should i accidentally close my window so minor coolman's a philosopher of science and he's a very interesting guy but he says like think of an electron it's just a bundle of various properties math charge and spin and then there's numerous non-essential properties like position and velocity if you take away these properties the mass charge and spin what are you left with to describe this electron? Well, nothing, because that's all it essentially is. It's these mathematical identifiers. So everything material that we would call matter seems to reduce to information, whether it's a quantum field or a particle. So the universe really does seem to be emergent. Or so the real sorry, the universe seems to be merely information. But information itself cannot exist by itself. That just seems philosophically absurd. It's more likely to be dependent dependent on something that creates the information or generates the information. Same with what computers, like I talked about computers earlier, like you can't have a simulation existing by itself. A simulation exists dependent on an actual substance. So what is the information of reality dependent upon? Well, that's when we can talk about the second premise, but that's generally one way to argue for the emergence that the, say the universe is emergent. If it all reduces to information, there's nothing really beyond that that we could say is just some sort of substance. Uh, so it tends to be, so if, so if the universe is merely reduces to information, it's likely that it just simply uh, would be emergent from some sort of underlying substance. Other ways I can argue for that is like the holographic principle, uh, the fact that entanglement is an underlying fundamental feature of reality, uh, various ways to argue for this. I can even argue it from philosophy as I'll do in the video next week. Uh, but that's generally one way to go about it. So then I argue for the, uh, so I argue that the universe is emergent because it reduces to information. And then at that point we can talk about the second premise, but how do we know it's emergent from a mind? Why would it not be emergent from some sort of underlying substance that's not a mind? Yeah, I think that'd be a good place to go now is just talk about like, why do you think um, if the universe is emergent, then it follows that like um, you think that the universe is emerging from a mind. Yeah, so I mean, so take Brian Greene, for example. He, he argues that maybe there's some sort of more underlying fundamental spaceless timeless substance that gives rise to our space-time. Now, now, I agree, but why would it be a material substance that somehow, like, it just is, it looks like, it's like, acts like what we think of when we think of matter, like, on, in, the, in these individual little particles, but is somehow beyond detection. So... Here, here, there's four ways I generally try to argue for this. First, the one thing to do is argue via simplicity. What we're doing when we say that is we're positing some sort of undetectable material substance beyond any sort of detection 
that somehow gives rise to the material world through information processing that we inhabit. Why? Like that, that's very, that's complicated. It, that overcomplicates what's going on here. The idealist says everything is reducible to consciousness and information or excitation of patterns and consciousness. So that's what the material reality is. Okay, so someone who wants to reject that and argue there's some sort of material substance beyond uh, quantum field theory that we just can't detect yet, that somehow gives rise to everything. You, you've multiplied entities beyond necessity. The idealist is saying, well, it's consciousness that's at the base of reality. This is something cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman says. It's underlying, the, the underlying, what gives rise to things like quantum field theory uh, or space-time would be conscious agents. So right then and there, it's it's more simpler. We the materialist still has to get it, deal with something called the hard problem of consciousness. They have to explain how material reality somehow builds conscious agents. So they got to explain that. They got to explain. They have to posit a material substance beyond quantum field theory that we just can't detect. That somehow gives rise to everything. And so you've you've already multiplied entities beyond necessity. The idealist just says, well, let's start with what we already have and build from there. We have a, we have an idealistic reality. And that would just say there's consciousness and information processed in consciousness. That explains material reality. So right then and there, it's simpler. Now from there, you just use basic contingency arguments to go, well, you know, obviously you and I are not fundamental. We came into existence at a point in time. That implies that if all material reality is mental, like it reduces to consciousness, that would imply a consciousness beyond uh, ourselves that sort of gave rise to conscious agents. So it's just, it's just arguing from a, a, to a theistic idealistic worldview. It's much simpler. You posit one substance, consciousness, and all of material reality would just be information processed in consciousness. That's much simpler than positing this undetectable material substance that gives rise to the, our material reality via quantum field theory, and that somehow gives rise to conscious agents that can then somehow have introspection and look back and question these things. It gets very complicated. Whereas idealism says, let's just start with what we know. It says consciousness and material reality is built from there. And then there's other indicators that support that as well, which I can talk about if you want. But if you have any yeah, questions sure. about that. No, I think this is good because like just a layout for people listening, what we're doing is, is just kind of overviewing the argument. And we're going to go back to like each premise and kind of look at some objections and such. Um, and we'll do a little bit of Q&A in about 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, feel free to go into the, the another couple of these reasons. Yeah, so people go, well, what, what is there any scientific indicators that would say that the, the universe uh, – whatever gave rise to the universe looks like a mind. Well, there, there are some things. So there, there are two scientists who are not idealists. They're not theists, Franco Vaz and Alberto Felitti. And so they did a paper where they compared uh, the, within the, cor uh, the cortex of the brain, uh, they compared uh, the neural configurations to the cosmic web of galaxies and they found remarkable similarities. Now, now on idealism, this is an important point, a brain is not some separate substance that interacts with mind. On mm -hmm. idealism, the brain and the whole body by extension is what a conscious agent looks like in reality. It's essentially your avatar. If you're gonna interact in a physical reality, you gotta look like something. So this is what you look like. This is a, a representation of a conscious agent. Your brain is what consciousness looks like when it's interacting in reality. So it sort of flips the materialist paradigm on its head. It's, it's the brain is a representation of consciousness. It's not the brain that somehow gives rise to consciousness. Consciousness is sort of giving rise to a representation in physical reality. So if the whole universe is emergent from a mind, you would kind of expect it on idealism to sort of look, be the representation of a, a much larger, so to speak, conscious agent. Well, that's what the data in their, in their work shows is that there are similarities between brains and the, and the uh, cosmic web of galaxies. Well, on idealism, you would expect that because just like our brains are the representations of conscious agents, the whole universe would be the representation of a much larger conscious agent that we are, of course, that we, of course, would emerge from as well. So that sort of supports the idea that the universe is emergent from a conscious agent uh, because the cosmic web of galaxies also resembles a representation the same way our brains are representations of conscious agents. Another mm -hmm. correlation I use is quantum cognition. Now people get mad when I use this, um, but I, I will debate them all day because I've read more papers than I, I should have on this at this point. Uh, so quantum cognition is, is an attempt to model cognitive processes using the mathematical formulism of quantum mechanics. This is not to say the brain is quantum computing. That's a different theory altogether called quantum mind theory. It's just saying, you know, the way we think we imagine, throw ideas out, process information, reason. That 
that psych psychological aspect of ourselves can be modeled using the formalism of quantum mechanics. And they've had remarkable success with this model. They've been solving you know, decade-old puzzles that, uh, that psychologists have been stumped by. They've been modeling our cognitive processes in much better ways. So remarkable success. Now, the philosopher then goes, well, if the mind, not the brain, but the mind is working in a way that is quantum-like, wouldn't that also follow that maybe if quantum mechanics gave rise, like the underlying quantum realm, quantum field theory, sort of universe sort of emerges out of that, because that's the fundamental reality from which everything else builds from. If minds sort of are acting in that same way, it kind of could, you could make a comparison there that maybe what the universe emerged from also resembles a mind. Because our minds can be modeled using the mathematical formulas of quantum mechanics. What the universe came from would be underlying quantum processes. So what gave rise to the universe resembles mind-like attributes, mind-like aspects in various ways. So just like the work with uh, Vaso and Felitti, there, there's two different ways that seem to point that the underlying quantum realm seems to resemble mind-like structures or a mind-like structure. It, it, the emergent classical world, the cosmic web of galaxies, also in some ways seems to be the representation of a mind, the same way our brains are representations of minds. And the underlying quantum world behaves or acts in a similar way that our minds act. So th there's two interesting correlations. Now, those are correlations. Those alone wouldn't prove my theory. Some people have accused me of overemphasizing the data I place on those. No, because it's just the, this, the, because the digital physics argument is a standard contingency argument. It uses a lot of the same type of reasoning uh, that you would see from contingency arguments. Uh, so you know, like William Lane Craig on the Kalam says, "Well, what gave rise to the universe would have to be spaceless, timeless, uh, immaterial, uh, and what we the only thing we know that would resemble that is a mind." Well, the dig digital physics argument is building on that reasoning and giving additional support from multiple areas. Theistic idealism. Uh, like I argued earlier, offer simplicity. You don't have to posit additional substances. You just posit consciousness, information, and then you have the correlations via quantum cognition and the work of um, and the work in cosmic web of galaxies compare, compare, comparison to neural networks. So there's an interesting scientific evidence that does seem to support the overall conclusion that the universe is emerging from a mind. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, so now what we'll do is we'll go into some objections um, to your argument. Uh, first with the emergent universe, I'm curious, uh, first off, like, does your argument rely on like there being like a past finite universe? Because um, I'm just curious because it talks about, you talk about how like it just seems like the material world's um, underwritten by like quantum fields. So like, do you even need to have like causal finitism for your, for your argument to work with regards to the first premise? No, and that's why I like the argument so much is because you don't have to worry about causality. You don't have to have some sort of specific theory of time. Because the whole universe could be past eternal, as absurd as that would be, uh, but it would still be emergent. The, that whole entire space-time block that's infinite in the past would still be emergent in some sense. So no, you don't have to rely yeah. on any form of causality. And that's that's one of the things... See, Craig gets attacked by the Kalam a lot on his specific understanding of time and causality. And as many philosophers have noted, that's a weak point. So some have tried to rework the Kalam using B-theory of time. And, and so... I don't have to hold any about or worry about that because I'm just arguing for emergence. Mm, that's super helpful. And I, I do see that with like Craig's arguments. Um, it's like the Kalam's good, but then like with like, like a more like a, like a contingency argument like by like Alex Proust or someone, you can get around a lot of like the objections that Craig has to deal with. Um, yeah. Like then, well, I was just, well, yeah. real quick, I was reading James Fodor a book called Unreasonable Faith where he responds to a lot of Craig's arguments. And honestly, for like the first 100 pages, I, I found myself agreeing with, with James. I was like, yeah, I don't agree with Craig's theory of time. I, there are a lot of problems here, and I think he did a good job. And so for the first 100 pages, I found myself in a lot of agreement with what he was saying. There were some – and then later on, I, I found a lot of more disagreement. But, I mean, like, the first part, I was like, yeah, go for it, man. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so then a lot of the objections to like maybe like cosmological arguments are like, well, couldn't there just be another Big Bang part of this one? Or like, we just don't know if the universe is emerging because we don't understand quantum gravity yet. Um, so you think with like the digital physics argument because it didn't rely on causal finitism, can it just kind of skip through those um, objections? Yeah, so I mean, you could always posit this idea that, you know, maybe we don't have enough information yet to make this inference. And I always go, well, who's the arbiter? Who? who who decides these type of things? Like, when are we going to have enough information to make an inference to the best explanation? So, yeah, we don't have a theory of quantum gravity yet, but take the holographic principle. The basic idea is that the universe is sort of analogous to a hologram 
it's that there was a distant two-dimensional surface and all the three-dimensional world we inhabit would be uh, emergent from that in the same way a hologram would be emergent from underlying two-dimensional information. So it doesn't mean we literally are a hologram. It's, it's an analogy. It's an approximation of the way reality is. Every theory of quantum gravity moving forward is likely to include the holographic principle. So originally it was thought it would be a component of string theory. Uh, then Juan Maldacena published a paper, I believe in 1997, basically showing that the mathematical uh, superiority of the holographic principle, how it works, uh, how it's applied to. And then uh, Sabine Hassenfelder, I think is her name, published a little bit of work showing that even with the other large competing theory with string theory, it's called loop quantum gravity. So the two main theories for a theory of quantum gravity are loop quantum gravity and um, loop quantum gravity and um, sorry, my, my brain just had a fart there, uh, string theory. So originally it was thought the holographic principle would only work with string theory, but it actually shows that you could sort of see it correlating well with loop quantum gravity as well. So as Leonard Susskind notes, the holographic principle is not going away, uh, that it's going to be part of any theory moving forward with, with regards to a theory of quantum gravity. Uh, and so unless someone has some sort of like revolutionary idea that redoes everything, it seems like it's going to be there. So just because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity yet, that doesn't mean the holographic principle is not sufficient to make philosophical inferences from. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to change sometime soon. There, it, It's kind of weird when people say that. I mean, because all the major physicists are saying this is here to stay. This is our path forward at this point. So no, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand why people say we don't have enough data to make that sort of inference. I need to know, well, what makes you say that? What felt like I need more than just you arbitrarily saying we don't have enough data to make an inference. I think we have plenty of data to make an inference. And even if I don't have something like the holographic principle, because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity yet, uh, who cares? I could argue for emergent space time from quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, uh, pure philosophy itself. So I don't see that as much of an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one more objection here to the emergent universe before we go into like the idea of it being in mind. Um, someone might wonder, well, well, how do we really know that like the universe is emergent from like quantum fields? Like, I mean, the traditional idea that it was just like it was like particles or like matter energy, something like that. And that's fundamental. So like, how can we know that like that's not what's fundamental um, in just reality? I don't excuse you say that again. Sorry. I think you might, yeah. I may have broken up a little bit. So just make sure I got all that. Yeah. Um, so basically, I was just asking about. Um, you talk about how like it seems like uh, quantum fields are underlying like matter energy. Um, it seems like we can go further. But someone say, well, why do we have to go to quantum fields? Can it just be like matter energy, and that's the end of the end of the explanatory cycle? Yeah, it's like it's like why wouldn't that just be a brute fact? Well, you can posit that, but you're not really having a, you don't really have explanatory scope. You just stop at some point and say, well, this just is the end of the buck. Okay, yeah, I understand every worldview is going to have some brute facts, but we want to minimize brute facts as much as we can. And you want some sort of underlying, uh, you want some sort of worldview that's going to have the most internal consistency and be able to have, offer the most explanatory scope. If you're just going to stop at some point and say, this is a brute fact in and of itself, okay, but you're, you're going to lack explanatory uh, scope. You're going to lack, I would say, simplicity in a lot of ways. And you're just, it seems like you're just making it ad hoc. You're making an ad hoc assumption there. Theism is a little bit different. We can posit perfect being theism, which would entail that God is like the only brute fact. So God's existence is a brute fact, but God also comes with an internal nature that explains his own properties, explains a lot about him. So because he's a perfect being, he would entail omniscience, omnipotence, moral perfection, necessity. That alone has more explanatory scope because now you have an internal nature that it can explain why God is necessary, why God uh, sort of creates, what approximate the type of worlds God would create based on his nature. On a naturalistic account, you're just sort of pausing some substance as a brute fact, and then the laws of nature we have are just a brute fact, and you just start multiplying all these brute facts. You gotta say the brain creates consciousness as a brute fact on some theories. You, see, you start multiplying brute facts beyond necessity, and it just gets absurd after a while. What philosophers like Richard Swinburne, uh, Eric Lefto, or I'm sorry, Brian Lefto, I keep wanting to say his name is Eric, I don't know why, but Brian Lefto, they'll point out that theism has much more explanatory scope, more parsimonious, more plausible, because it has an internal nature to explain all this type of stuff. Just taking a naturalistic account and positing something as a brute fact has less explanatory scope.
because you just don't you're not really explaining why the substance is even there because it doesn't come with an internal nature that entails perfect uh, per, 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 that would be the same as perfect being theism so it has mm -hmm. some issues yeah, there's uh, one of the things that um, has come to my attention recently is like the argument from limits, like Josh Rasmussen, because um, he talks about like how like any like most um, like materialistic worldviews they're gonna have these at the end of the explanatory cycle, um, like these brute facts that are like matter, energy, or whatnot to have like sizes, masses, like. And there's a great quote by Trent Dougherty with similar things in the Black Book Companion um, to evil. Um, but getting into like um, objections to God um, and like why the, if there's an emergent universe, um, then it must come that it's a mind. Um, someone might say, well the universe is just emergent and like, that's it. We don't need to add a mind. Um, don't multiply entities beyond necessity. Um, so like, what are your thoughts there on just saying, well, couldn't just the universe being emerging just be the end of explanation? Yeah, that doesn't really, when you got, when, if you're going to invoke Occam's razor, you better understand it correctly. What Occam's razor is not the simplest explanation. It's the simplest explanation that can adequately explain all the data. It's don't multiply entities beyond necessity. I could just say, I could just say, you know, something like, yeah, the universe is, is emergent from atoms, but I'm not going to posit subatomic particles because that's more complex. I don't want to go beyond just basic atoms and talk about electrons or protons because you're complicating the theory. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that doesn't actually explain all the data we see in science because there are subatomic particles there. The data supports that. And the mathematics supports that. You just can't stop at atoms. You got to go beyond that to explain all the data. So. If its simplicity was the only game in town, why can't I just stop at atoms? Why do I have to posit subatomic mm -hmm. particles? Well, any physicalist will say, well, because the data, you got to explain all the data. You're not explaining all the data. You're just stopping when you want to and saying, well, okay, that's enough for me, but that's not actually explaining all the data. Again, it's not just simplicity. It's simplicity that can adequately explain all the data. So my response would be, you can stop there, but you're not actually explaining all the data. You lack explanatory scope and that you lack plausibility you lack uh, parsimony as well. So sure, stop wherever you want, but that doesn't mean you're gonna have the best explanation. Hmm. Oh, I, I wonder like if it was just about simplicity, like could the younger creationists win? Um, because they talk, we talk about like <laughs> yeah. evolutionary theory um, and like all these, like evolutionary theory is complex, um, but if it's just the simplest theory, well, you know, God created it. That's the end of the story. Uh, we don't need this like evolutionary theory. Um, so I just kind of wonder if that hurts the idea of just saying simplicity. Yeah, I mean, why posit this long evolutionary history? We can just say that, you know, God created everything immediately. Uh, well, it doesn't adequately explain all the data, as I would agree with, you know, evolutionists on that. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but doesn't your argument just rely on, I don't know, therefore God did it? No, not at all, because I'm not just saying, I'm not seeing something and saying, well, God did it. What I'm saying is, okay, what does the, what the data do we have? Okay, well, we have a material, material reality that reduces to information. Okay, uh, from multiple ways. Uh, we have some scientific indicators that shows that what the material reality emerges from resembles a mind. Using philosophy of contingency arguments and theistic idealism, you could argue for simplicity there. So there's a lot of different areas pointing to a mind. I mean, you just, a lot of new atheists want to reply to theism and say, well, you're just God of the gaps. God did it. Anytime you can't explain something, God did it. Well, mm -hmm. What if the data actually points to God, like actually points to a mind behind the universe? You're not, what you're doing is you're, you're putting a bias out there that could never allow for theism to be true on, in your worldview or reasoning because you just, you caricature theism as just that weird God of the gaps type thing. So mm -hmm. trying to show that we're biased or we're just fudging the data, they show us how biased they really are. And if you actually understand that the arguments for theism, you'd see these are not just God did it kind of things. We can't explain it. You would say, you would see that these are arguments to the best explanation. These are arguments from simplicity. A mind is the most likely explanation given what we know. I mean, it's like a flat earther saying, well, you just can't explain why things don't float off into space. So you just put gravity there. You just say gravity does it. Anyone who understands science would know that's a bad argument from a flat earther, but I've, I've seen it made in message boards before. Uh, but that's, that's a, you know, obviously that's not what scientists mean when they posit gravity. They say, given the data, we have a lot of good evidence to support the theory of general relativity and that space curvature causes gravity. So <laughs> again, you can, you can use that type of new atheist reasoning against theism in any other area to show how absurd it is. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, another um, kind of objection here. Um, I lost my train of thought there for a minute. Um, but um, 
maybe the, like the idea of like, well, like why a mine? Like I did this um, debate with Godless Engineer a few months ago. Um, we were just talking about like what's fundamental, minor matter. And it's like, well, can't you just look back into like history? And if you go back maybe like a million years ago, there were no mines. So like matter is just fundamental, obviously then. Um, so like, what are your thoughts on that kind of objection um, to the idea of just saying like, well, mind is fundamental rather than matter? That's just begging the question. He's assuming there were no minds back then. I mean, I mean, that's really what yeah. he's doing right there. Uh, it, you're assuming materialism and saying, well, you know, minds came into existence at a certain point, therefore minds cannot be fundamental. You're assuming the conclusion you're trying to show. Okay, the mm -hmm. idealist would say that, you know, consciousness is fundamental, so everything emerges from mind ultimately. It doesn't really, so, you know, I, but I, it would be ridiculous for me to argue for idealism by just assuming idealism. What all he is doing is he's assuming physicalism or mm -hmm. materialism, whatever you want to call it uh, so yeah i just see that as really bad reasoning uh you gotta again it's about the philosophical arguments we use to argue for idealism uh things like bundle theory or the problem of positive properties uh, there's a great book called idealism new essays in metaphysics which at each chapter has a different author so you get all these different perspectives uh susan schneider has a really good chapter in there so does helen uh, get her to chapel uh and trent doherty has a great chapter in there as well so there's a lot of really good stuff in there but again, we're arguing for an idealistic worldview or that mind is fundamental for various philosophical avenues. Uh, I don't want to say that it's exactly like this, but this might be a good analogy to see it. It's like a young earth creationist could say, well, I've never seen uh, a new species emerge. Therefore, evolution must have never happened in the past. Okay, well, you're assuming the conclusion you want just because we've never actually seen like, you know, a population of Homo heidelbergensis change into a population of Homo sapiens. That doesn't mean the evidence doesn't imply it happened in the past just mm -hmm. likewise just because we may not be able to know or we may not be able to go back and check and see if there were mines you know 14 billion years ago uh that doesn't mean there wasn't you 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 know you just can't use that type of reasoning mm. yeah that's that's really helpful um we're gonna go to q a pretty soon here so if you have questions or super chats feel free to send those in um obviously we do super chats first because they support the show and whatnot um but one kind of objection that was really interesting that came up in your debate with james fedora and i've seen it with like fine-tuning arguments is like how does positing god explain anything um like he talked about how like if god has like free will like we and we can't explain these choices like we're adding all these brute facts so to speak um so positing god just doesn't explain anything um in terms of like that so what are your thoughts on that kind of objection yeah, James Fodor. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, I was really confused by that because that's not what, if you rewrite philosophers like Brian Lefto or, or Richard Swinburne, Josh Rasmussen, Ed Pfizer, I mean, they, they've addressed this. All, I mean, it, it, we're not saying it's a brute fact. We're saying it's explained by our reason. So I think what he's trying to get at, and I could be wrong, but it's the idea that what is free will? Like, if libertarian free will, it, it's either randomly decided or it has to be determined by prior causes. That's not what we mean by libertarian free will. We don't mean it's just a free agent randomly decides something and then that's a brute fact. Uh, we mean that we, a free agent is able to choose from various reasons, various influence and make a decision. So even in, in Eric Lefto's short little paper I cited in that debate, he addresses it in there. He basically points out that I, what, if the fact that I ate a sandwich can be explained because I was hungry. Okay, It's a contingent. I can explain all that even though I may not be able to explain why I didn't do something else, but that's not necessarily the full explanation. So you could see uh, Brian left his paper for more on that, but no, I would say these are contingent facts. They're explained by the reasons inherent in the background knowledge. They're not explained by just a random brute fact decision by the agent. So no, I don't think that follows at all from there. And so I, I feel like he was, I, would, I don't want to say straw man, because I, I don't think he was being uncharitable in that. Mm -hmm. I just feel like, I don't think that's a good representation of what we mean when we talk about uh, libertarian free will choices. It's interesting because I was thinking about like during that debate, like it seemed like he was talking about like contingent things, like like God's choice to like create this world um, rather than another world. Like our world's contingent, um, and like when we get into like the brute facts thing, it's talking about like necessary facts, like um, like what are we positing that has no further explanation? So that was just something that like kind of stuck out to me, um, and it kind of didn't just like was making me thinking. Another thing was um, with that kind of idea, like if you're just gonna say, well, we have no idea what kind of world God would create. Like, I feel like you throw out the entire problem of evil and, like, divine hiddenness then. Because um, if you don't know what kind of world God would create, how do you know any preference of a world with, like, animal suffering versus not? Um, so it's just an interesting, interesting things. Um, with yeah, and, I mean, here's the problem with that is he's trying to say theism can explain anything. Like, it can explain any, anything that happens, so it doesn't explain anything. Well, mm -hmm. naturalism is consistent with multiple possible worlds. I mean, just take Matt Dillhunt. He, he's, he's said in debates that if someone resurrected in front of him, he wouldn't believe in a God because he would just 
saw someone resurrected. Maybe there's a naturalistic explanation for that. I've seen other atheists. I think Aaron Ross said that if God appeared for him, he might just tell himself he's having a delusion. Uh, so you can always, any naturalism can also explain anything, apparently. You can always just explain something. So therefore, naturalism explains nothing. Mm -hmm. No, that's bad reason. That's bad philosophy because worldviews, metaphysical worldviews, account for all the data out there. The real question is: is which is going to be is going to have the most explanatory scope, explanatory powers, can be the least ad hoc, is going to be the most plausible. So just because a worldview can explain something doesn't mean it's the best explanation. So no, I, I just I thought that reasoning was just really interesting, but just didn't really follow, and that's why I kept trying to show his worldview did the same thing. It mm. doesn't doesn't get that, that doesn't mean anything. Well, the real question is: what's the best explanation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have one more question for you here, um, and it's the idea is, is God just a brute fact that ends the explanatory chain? Like, it seems like at the foundation, um, if we follow the digital physics argument, we're going to get to a mind. Um, is that just like the end of explanation? Um, can we go farther with like perfection or something, do you think, in terms of like well, why a mind versus something else? Well, I mean, I agree with Richard Swinburne that like God is the brute fact. So God is like the brute fact. I mean, God just exists. End of story. Brute fact. Uh, but then it entails an internal nature that explains the type of, they can approximate the types of worlds he would create, explain his nature, why he would be necessary. So you posit less brute facts on the theistic worldview. So, um, sorry, I think, may, I may have gotten, did I answer your question? Or did I? Did yeah, I no, no, I think, I think that's good. Yeah, that's good. Okay, um, yeah, I just want to make sure I got it all. Yeah, um, we do have a little more time in terms of, I was hoping at like the 45 minute mark to go q and I'm curious, like, have you thought about like the compatibility with like the digital physics argument and like Trinitarianism? Like, is that something you've thought about? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the digital figure argument is compatible with a multitude of religions or world or theistic worldviews. I mean, you could be a pantheist technically and argue for use this argument. I don't see that as a problem. I never use digital physics argument to argue for Christianity. I use additional arguments to argue for Christianity. So, you know, if we didn't have other issues that Christianity can best explain, I wouldn't necessarily posit that. But I mean, because I think there's a lot of evidence to support Christianity, I think we have to posit a Trinity as well. So again, it's mm -hmm. Occam's razor is not about the simplest explanation. It's about the simplest explanation that can adequately explain all the data. If we have good evidence for Christianity, we posit a Trinitarian God as well. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, what we'll do now is go to a little bit of Q&A. So we'll do some questions and um, super chats, anything like that um, for the last like 10, 15 minutes here. Um, Vic Sata, uh, Vic Ben says, um, how can I do research and know about the compatibility of evolution in the Bible? So did I do that? Okay. How can I do that? Uh, how can I research? Okay, uh, there's so there's two ways to do it. First, you got to start with a theory of evolution that would be compatible with Christianity. You don't want a theory of evolution that would imply total randomness. Uh, there's no laws in nature that fine-tune evolution. So study structuralism. Uh, study the various uh, extended evolutionary uh, synthesis. I, I don't know if the modern synthesis is necessarily compatible with Christianity. It could be. I, I guess it can be. The more I think about it, it's just it's a little. It's a little less. Uh, I think it. I think it's a little bit more ad hoc than trying to take a more thing. So you got to show evolution is compatible with Christianity. Then you got to show Christianity, Genesis, is, uh, verses in the Bible are compatible with an evolution of worldview. So study the cultural context. Try to understand what the Hebrews were writing about in that world. They weren't writing about the origin of space, time, and matter, or where, uh, or evolutionary history, because those concepts were. They, didn't, they weren't even thinking in those terms. So study books like John Walton, Michael Heiser, uh, J. Richard Middleton has a good book on the liberating image, studying, understanding what the Imago Dei means. Uh, Joshua John Van E's got a good book or a good dissertation on this whole issue. So study the cultural context. Try to understand Genesis in its cultural context. Once we understand what the authors were doing when it comes to Genesis, and I say authors, plural, uh, we can understand that they weren't trying to do a theory with regards to the origin of all things. That's not what Genesis is about. It's about proclaiming that God is the ruler of the universe, the cosmos is his temple, and all these other pagan gods are not. That's what they're that's what they're focused on. So you gotta understand the cultural context. That'll be immensely helpful in understanding the aim and the purpose of Genesis. Mm, that's really helpful. Um do you what do you have um the future plan for the digital physics argument? Well, I got a video coming out next week. Uh, that will be using, it's, it's been a video I've been working on for probably about a year. I turned it into a term paper for last semester and then I built on it a little bit more. And so the video will be coming out next week. So that'll be a interesting video. Hopefully in a year, I'll start writing a book on it. I want to wait till I get my, my master's degree, but that'll be the next school. So write a book. Mm, that's great. So you graduate, um, next May. Yeah. 
Oh, it's exciting. Um, looking for another question here. Um, uh, what book, what, um, but any book recommendations for our introduction to co cosmology and quantum mechanics? Yeah, maybe uh, start with Leonard Susskind's book, The Black Hole War on Cosmology. That'll give you an idea about the dialogue he was having with Stephen Hawking and how we got to the holographic principle uh, for quantum mechanics. Uh, so what I talk about is the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics. So I'm not going to recommend a book where you learn how to do, you know, write the equations out of quantum mechanics because that's not what people are interested in when this topic comes up. So a good book on the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics would be a book called The Quantum Enigma. Uh, if you want an uh, interesting little shorter paper, there's a paper by Henry Stapp called Attention, Intention. In, uh, I always forget the last part of that paper, but it's that, that's the first part of it, and my mouse just died. But it's a pretty good, interesting little paper on the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics. So I recommend that. Quantum Enigma is also pretty good because uh, it goes into some other interpretations, explains some of the experiments. Uh, Stephen Barr's book, Mind and Cosmos, has a pretty good chapter on that issue as well, on quantum mechanics. And he's got some cool uh, stuff in there on cosmology as well. So those would be some pretty good books as well to start with. Mm, that's helpful. Um, what are your thoughts on like the Darwin Darwinistic theory of evolution? Well, I mean, Darwinism today is not... I mean, Darwinism is not the theory of evolution. It's an aspect of it, and we have moved past it in so many ways and found Darwin wrong in a lot of ways. So after Darwin, I mean, it became the modern synthesis where they took Mendel's genetics and they merged it with Darwinian evolution to give us that. And since then, we've expanded upon it even further. So Darwinism, yeah, I don't have any issues with it, but I understand it's not a full theory of what people mean when they mean by evolution today. Uh, when uh, young Earth creationists are always attacking Darwinism. They're not really attacking the modern understanding of evolution. Um, that one gamer says, um, what are your thoughts on like other digital physics arguments like cellular autonoma? I have no clue what that is. I'd have to look more into cellular autonoma. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't really, I'd have to look more into it before I say anything on it. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, Bina says, um, do all living things have minds, like plants, bacteria? Like, so what, what do you think of in the terms of like what's conscious? Yeah, so, so yeah, I think all life is, is, is a representation of consciousness in some way. So the way Bernardo Castro sort of explains it with an analogy, it's like think of someone who has multiple personality disorder or disassociative identity disorder. In that you have a, a conscious agent and they have different personalities. It's split off from the, the, the mind. It's not splitting off the different consciousnesses, like different conscious minds, it's different personalities. So on idealism, the, 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 you have a conscious agent and then you have life would be different alters, so to speak. And it's not like it's a dysfunction, it would just be a natural effect of an idealistic worldview. And so all life is in some sense, a different alter splitting off of consciousness in that sense. So it's a different personality so to speak. So yeah. that's the way uh, I sort of look at it. Yeah, that's great. Um, Roger, hello, says you have book recommendations for idealism. Yeah, More Than Matter by Keith Ward is pretty good. Uh, great book to go to is Bernardo Castro's book, The Idea of the World. Uh, that's a pretty good book on idealism. Uh, so he, he's not, he calls himself a naturalist, even he's not really a theist. So there's some things I disagree with there. Like he just says like universal consciousness is not like an agent. And I just feel like that's, like that's ad hoc. Like, why wouldn't it be an agent if it's, if it's consciousness? And that's why I'm a theist because I think like it's strenuous for your worldview to say that there's a mind behind the universe, but it's not like us. It's not like a conscious agent. I'm like, okay, well, maybe, but that's just it seems like we're multiplying complexity that doesn't need to be there. If it if it looks like a conscious agent, it most likely is a conscious agent. Uh, I'm trying to remember Donald Hoffman's book. Um, I have a, a Google version of it. So let me look that up really quick because this is a pretty good book. Uh, he argues for, I think, more of a subjective idealist view. It's, the title is The Case Against Reality, uh, which is a pretty good book. So the case against, so let me put the, uh, More Than Matter by Keith Ward, The Idea of the Ward by Bernardo Castrip, The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman, and the, the book Idealism, New Essays in Metaphysics, which has multiple authors. So I, I would go to those books. Um, Jono says, um, do you think that the interaction problem is sufficient to justification to ditch substance dual, dualism? You talked about how, you, how about how about you about how you were a substance dualist before? Um, so what do you thought? Yeah, I, I so I did I did a series where I talk about the irreducible mind, and I, I try to 
make it compatible with both substance dualism and idealism. Even though when I was doing it, I'm like, yeah, I think the idealist can better explain this than the substance dualist. So yeah, I think it's, it's sufficient on simplicity. Like why would we posit two substances when we don't need to? We just posit theistic idealism. You have a conscious agent who creates alters other minds uh, who experience the world in different ways. And the material reality just reduces to information or excitation patterns within consciousness, uh, essentially information sort of process within process by conscious agents. So that just seems far simpler than positing there's two substances and then they got to interact in some way. Uh, and so, you know, it, I, it just, I would argue against it. I would argue for the interaction problem via simplicity. I just think idealism better explains it. Mm, um, that's good. Um, the next question here is from, we've uh, well, time for a couple more questions. And the computer theist says, um, what are your, what's the best cosmological argument in your opinion? And also your thoughts on the Kalam. So I'll start with the Kalam. Uh, I, I think the Kalam's okay. I just don't, it's not my favorite version because I think you could just use like the Leibnizian version uh, and get everything from there and not have to worry about if it's, if it's compatible with B theory of time or not, uh, what sort of theory of time are we implying here? What theory of causality are we implying here? I just think you can just do the Leibnizian version be better. Again, my favorite version is going to be my the version I use, the digital physics argument. Mm -hmm. um, another question here from Leonard Gaio, which says, um, what do you think is the most powerful argument for the existence of God? Is it your digital physics argument? I would say digital physics, but you got to include perfect being theism in there mm -hmm. because you're going to get simplicity. And you're going to get around a lot of Graham Oppie's objections. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, so we are around out of time, Michael. So do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here? No, I, I think we've said a lot with regards to that. I'm still working on a lot of this stuff. So I'm always willing for more feedback. Uh, but hopefully in a book, in a year, I'll start writing a book. I don't know how long it'll take me, but I'm not going to rush it. Uh, but that's the goal eventually is to start getting to that point. So, uh, yeah, a new video about this will be on my channel next week where I'm going to argue that uh, mind is fundamental, not matter. And um, then I have a lot more stuff on the Old Testament coming out soon. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff coming out. Yeah, that's great. And I'd encourage everyone, um, if you're new to IP and hearing them for the first time, be sure to check out that channel. Lots of great content. Um, and you can check the link down below to see um, IP's YouTube channel. And if you're new to here in Apologetics, always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all those fun things. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. But Michael, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you everyone who tuned in. Susan, the computer theist, um, Roger, Leonard, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.